Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center and you can also find this link in the show notes. Today we talk about entrepreneurship in fragile states and our guest is Professor Jan Kratzer. Jan Kratzer is a chair professor for entrepreneurship and innovation management and he is the founder and academic director of the Center for Entrepreneurship at the Technical University in Berlin, Germany. At the Faculty for Business and Economy at the TU Berlin, he holds the function as a vice dean for internationalization, and he's also a member of the Academic Senate. Professor Kratzer established and leads the dual degree master program, Master of Science in Innovation Management, Entrepreneurship and Sustainability. In 2003, Jan Kratzer and others created the startup NetScan, which uh, does applied network analytics. And in 2006, he and others created another startup, Improve, which deals with project management. So he has experience both on the theoretical, but also on the practical side of entrepreneurship. As a chair professor for entrepreneurship and innovation management, he has attracted around 20 million euros of third-party funding between 2010 and 2010. 23. And he's also on the editorial board of a journal called Creativity and Innovation Management, another one called Journal of Product Innovation Management, a third one, Sustainability, and a fourth one, Highlights of Sustainability. So that's a lot of journals and a lot of editorial work that he does there. His research is mainly on factors that drive sustainable entrepreneurial and innovation activities, taught success, and resulted in more than 100 scientific publications. On top of that, he has also supervised more than 80 PhD students. So Jan is a busy man. So we're very thankful that he found the time to join us here on this podcast. Welcome. Hello. Nice speaking to you. So summarizing your CV, you deal with the topic of entrepreneurship from the theoretical perspective as a teacher at university, as a researcher, but you also have significant amount of first-hand knowledge as a founder of companies, so you're well-versed in both topics. Now, we are not talking about entrepreneurship in, in general here today, but we want to look at it specifically through the angle of fragile states. Now, given your extensive experience in that field, what are some of the challenges that entrepreneurs face, particularly in those fragile states? Yeah, I mean, in the fragile states, you cannot speak about a well-developed um, entrepreneurial ecosystem. It differs. I mean, fragile world, what do you account for that? Do you speak about entire global south? Do you speak about a certain continents, regions, countries? I mean, we are running projects in Pakistan, in Egypt, in Tanzania, where I just come from. Um, last two weeks I've spent there. 
And you see very different challenges there. Um, I mean, entrepreneurship has another status or it's something else than we speak about in Europe. I mean, we speak about technology, we speak about green tech, ecological questions. And that's very different. Um, that's mostly low tech. It's agriculture, it's micro entrepreneurship. And mostly you don't have a entrepreneurial ecosystem around as incubators, as, as VCs, as uh, angels investing in, in entrepreneurship. Um, you have legal regulations that, that hamper entrepreneurship. So it's pretty difficult. But on the other hand side, all these countries have a very young population, which is seeking for employment and seeking for possibilities to also make their livings. And so you have a lot of informal entrepreneurship and smaller scale entrepreneurship in these countries. That's a very different picture comparing Europe to the global south. Can you give some examples of uh, countries that you would call fragile states in this context so, to give our listeners an idea? Yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult. Countries are on different development stages. Countries have a different dominating religion and different political systems. So what, what's fragile? I mean, you can certainly um, get in the poorest countries, like Tanzania is one of a very poor country where I would say it's fragile. Also Pakistan, it's an extremely poor country where we can speak about fragile conditions, particularly for entrepreneurs. Um, Egypt is higher developed, but on the countryside also very fragile compared Everything compared to a very well-developed entrepreneurial ecosystem in Europe. So is it linked directly to the economic level or the, the poverty level of a country? Or does it have to do more with stability of uh, certain institutions, also maybe the judicial system, uh, regulation, and so on and so forth? It's an entire package. Of course, it has something to do with the development stage, with poverty, with uh, economic factors. But it has also to do with, let's say, the political conditions in the country. I mean, when we speak about Syria or, or Sudan or, or Libya or other countries, I mean, you have wars in there. You have very uh, unstable uh, political situations in there. That, of course, makes it even worse for entrepreneurs to be acting. So it's a matter. I, I don't have any clear definition of fragility, but of course, the economic factors play a role, political factors play a role. And uh, you have also, let's say, instability in societies, uh, religious conflicts. I don't know how many wars we have currently um, on a globe, but certainly six, seven, eight that are most obvious and that create fragile situations. Now, when I hear this, it seems that entrepreneurs in fragile states have it much more difficult on almost uh, every aspect compared to their peers in more established countries. Now, why would I want to be an entrepreneur in a country like this, other than maybe because I happen to live there? But what, what are there also advantages that these entrepreneurs maybe have? Yeah, I mean, it's the same advantage as entrepreneurs have in developed countries. I mean, you're self-employed, you can make your own decisions, um, you can choose what you do. I mean, there, for the personal level, there are always advantages for entrepreneurs. At these countries, it's more or less often to be for people are forced to be entrepreneurs. There is no other way. There are no jobs where you can make your living. So you have to create something, selling on a market or creating a small business, trading something. It's often not very developed. There is no big business model behind it. It's just for making a living. And when we look at that, also research shows us 
particularly in this countries, you have a lot of informal entrepreneurship where we in, in Europe, we count the formal parts of entrepreneurship. We can count how many taxes are paid, how many employees are there. But in this countries, you have a huge sector of informal entrepreneurship, um, which is hardly captured somewhere. Nobody knows how big it really is, but it, it's certainly bigger than the formal one. So when, when you talk about entrepreneurship in these countries, it's probably quite different from the idea of entrepreneurship that we have in developed countries, not just because it's part of the formal economy or outside of it, but also because it's much smaller in nature. So you would say these are small merchants, um, people who sell or buy some stuff. It's not so much the idea that you create a unique product uh, which will eventually become a unicorn, you will become tremendously rich or change the world in one way or another. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, I give you an example out of Pakistan. I mean, at this universities, when you speak about entrepreneurship, you speak about individual performances, making some art, making some food products, making some smaller products you can sell as individual. There is the concept of starting tech company and becoming a, a unicorn, it's not even embedded in their educational system or in their thinking. Um, it's about somehow more being self-employed as what we would describe as entrepreneurship in Europe. Now, you as a professor of entrepreneurship, obviously, you help potential future entrepreneurs, I guess, learn what they need, the skills they need. Now, if you look at these fragile states, what is it that someone like you, a professor in that field, could do to maybe help these people become more successful, if that is such an important part of the economies in those countries? It's not only me. I mean, what Europe can deliver to these countries, and I think it's really necessary also for our own future as European countries, it's uh, for most education. What we can bring there is the capability and the skills to think a bit ahead of uh, or beyond uh, being just self-employed, also creating businesses that are running and that are maybe also sustainable um, at the same time. So to bring them knowledge and the capabilities and skills um, they need, particularly in my discipline in, in innovation and entrepreneurship, we can get in and, and help them. And the next step is what's really missing. It's the whole process of incubation. So it's not only that I have an idea, you need to create business models around that that are long-standing and working and sustainable. And uh, that also needs incubation processes, um, but needs to be learned. It's often those countries, they the dominating level is the bachelor level. And the people come out with some simple, vague ideas. And most often they think then we give them some money and the business will appear, which often fails. And quite often we also subsidize businesses there, which fail after the subsidy has come. So um, I think... We need to learn them how to incubate and we need to bring our education to them because we are much further developed in many things. Are there examples, positive examples that you could maybe share where this is happening? Yeah, you have parts of the, of the African continent like Ghana or Kigali um, um, where entrepreneurship is already very dominant and um, incubators have been built up and, and startups run out and investors invest so that you have created an entrepreneurial ecosystem which actually accelerates things in the country. That also means that you invest in, in universities and other uh, scientific institutions, that the policy gets support. I mean, you need some democratic environment and getting entrepreneurship running in a country. 
country. Um, you need some some stability, some security for investments that all has been created in some countries. Um, but you have all the other countries like Pakistan, where it is extremely um, unstable and, and insecure. Now, that's interesting. You said you need stability, you need democracy in order to encourage entrepreneurship. Some people would argue or maybe argued until fairly recently that maybe the opposite is the case. So you get stability not through democratic uh, structures, but you get it uh, through an authoritarian regime that provides that stability top down, such as, for example, in China, which you probably wouldn't call a fragile state, I suppose, under your definition, but that's certainly not a democracy. That's true. Um, that's a state-regulated kind of entrepreneurship. You have that there. Um, that's accelerated, but it's also extremely controlled. And in China, it might work because it's a very collectivistic culture. I mean, there are more factors around that. They have entrepreneurship, but when you see where the students that are the most successful entrepreneurs are educated, you're back in Europe and in the United States. So um, they send actually millions of people for getting education here and they're then back in, in China. So um, they invest actually in that. But that's not true for other fragile countries where we have to go because, I mean, I, I run a study program. We have applicants of more than 80 countries in the study program, but many of them cannot afford coming to, to Europe. And therefore, we actually try to transport our educational efforts in cooperation with local actors to the countries. It's not that we teach the same as we would do in Germany when we go to Egypt or Pakistan. We actually do that together with the local partners because we are not into the local context there and we have to adapt to that. But it helps much more than, let's say, having applicants that never can afford coming to Berlin. Now, we spoke about the challenges, the obstacles that these entrepreneurs face uh, in those fragile states, you know, certain uncertainty, lack of regulation, lack of uh, a proper ecosystem. But I would like to focus a little bit maybe also on some of the unique advantages. And uh, what I would like uh, to talk about a little bit is this idea of frugal innovation that uh, I think was popularized in India a lot, is that you say, given the, the conditions of some of these developing countries, there is a different kind of innovation that comes out of these countries because of pure necessity because there's very cost-sensitive markets. You have to focus a lot on the core functionality of your products. You cannot afford to have too many bells and whistles. Can that also be an advantage that these entrepreneurs eventually face? It is, of course, an advantage. I mean, uh, it goes faster. It, it, it's a kind of copying uh, business models, copying products into new markets. It's a kind of market innovation. Of course, it goes faster than, than doing the products all yourself on, on an entire way of, of, of developing phases. So I think that's the concept that works. I mean, I'm in any way, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of open access and open source. So um, we, we actually, when we really want to accelerate economic development in these countries, we should actually change our patent laws and our entire protection um, to have it more open source and open access. And that would propel uh, fruitful innovations in these countries massively. So you mean that uh, developed countries should make it easier for, say, entrepreneurs in developing countries to use uh, patents at low prices or even for free? Is that what you're advocating for? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm proposing. I mean, to be honest, most of the technology and most things that are new appear 
here at uh, academic institutions. And in Europe, most academic institutions are financed publicly. So in this way, there is even uh, morality behind it to give it free for everyone. That really would propel economic development. Now, you said that a lot of these countries that you are dealing with, they are uh, behind when it comes to knowledge about entrepreneurship, about innovation cycles, about incubation and all these kind of things. What do you say if someone says, well, you know, imposing the values or you, the way we do things in the global north is also some kind of imperialism or cultural domination? Is there a different approach maybe to entrepreneurship or are these things so universal that they are being applied in the same way, no matter which context? Yeah, that, that depends. It's a balance. I mean, it's not, not so easy. I mean, we have... We have a focus in the developed countries on profitability, on unicorns. At the moment, of course, we are going into green tech and, and, and sustainability, but often there is a lot of greenwashing going on. When we have a real look into what we do and in our unicorns, I don't think we have any sustainable unicorn in Europe. They all have unsustainable impacts. So it would be a wrong way going there. We do it the same way as we do in Europe because we have to change significantly in Europe as well. And that's a difficult thing. I mean, what I see when I was just last week in, in, in Tanzania, um, they are looking, when they look at agricultural approaches, um, they are looking at mass production in Europe and Israel and cutting down the trees in, in Brazil as a most efficient method. That's, of course, not that's what we want to propose there, but that's what they learn from us because we do it uh, the way it is. So and it, it's quite difficult to educate there and to incubate more sustainable models because you always have to look at to the richer north where we work with unsustainability all the day. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's also the a lot of the discussion going on when it comes to climate change is that these countries have to develop economically without going through carbonization like uh, we did in the in the global north. So they have it more difficult in a, in a certain way. And there's also, I mean, the discussion, I guess, is also relevant here is saying that the, the global north has actually already exhausted its, its uh, CO2 emissions uh, and the global south maybe hasn't yet because they just started later what about collaboration is there something you see or do you see potential for collaboration between entrepreneurs from developed countries and those in the developing or fragile states is that something that you see happening or if not at least we would say there is some potential there is of course some potential i don't see it too much as let's say african or asian entrepreneurs or south american entrepreneurs coming to the united states or europe the markets the approaches the products the level of technology is really different but it does not mean that you cannot learn from each other and that you cannot exchange i mean of course europeans will find business opportunities in africa and the other way around but uh, we have to consider that the level of technology is different um, i mean What I find a good idea, it's exchanging startup teams for quite a while, sending an African startup team to, to Europe for a couple of months, and then they go back and, and, and have learned many, many things that are quite vivid, quite obvious in Europe and that are more difficult there. But just the exchange of having a European team going to Africa is extremely difficult um, because all the conditions, the markets, the customers, everything has to be done in another way than in a developed country. A bold prediction, the world in 10 years. One of the segments in this podcast is that we ask our guests to put on uh, their 
had as a futurologist look into the crystal ball and give us a bold prediction of how the world will look like in 10 years. So when we talk about entrepreneurship in these fragile states, what do you think we will see in 10 years? Will we see an advancement? Will there be more entrepreneurship, different kind of entrepreneurship? In which way do you see those uh, countries developing? I really hope it develops on the positive side. And if so, and we can, in the maturity of countries, keep a certain stability, then we will see more entrepreneurship. We have plenty of young people there and plenty of ideas and plenty of opportunities. So the way out of economic underdevelopment in these countries is entrepreneurship. And that will develop as long as we have stability. I mean, at the moment, we are facing a quite difficult situation worldwide. I mean, we have many wars. We have a climate change crisis. Um, we have economic crisis on a regional level. So there are so many problems that can can make that fragile the process towards more entrepreneurship. But as we have seen in the last 50 years, young smaller companies are getting more and more of the share of employment, of turnover, of uh, GDP in all countries. So it actually it will be the dominating force for any sustainable transformation if we go in this direction. So you actually see entrepreneurship also as a way for some of these countries to get out of their fragility or their difficult economic situation and to become more stable, more developed countries? I think so. I mean, it's actually the only way they have. Um, they are, yeah, will not create corporates as we have it. They, they don't have the way of economic development as we have it in an industrial countries. So um, that's the way of having now millions or billions of young people that search for opportunities for their living, um, maybe also for changing the world, for making this world better. And these opportunities can be found in uh, being entrepreneurial in one or another way. And I think that's the way out also of having more formal entrepreneurship done and not everything on an informal side. What's the role of digitalization in that? Does that affect those entrepreneurs at all? Does it change business models in those countries or is that something that is too far away for a lot of the entrepreneurs in these more fragile countries? I don't think so. Digitalization changes education. I mean, we produce digital courses in entrepreneurship for these countries that are fully digital. Even the examination is, is digital. So to have a reach, I mean, in Egypt, we work together with a university with 200,000 students. I mean, teaching many of them, it's physically impossible. You don't have the manpower doing that. It's, it's just not doable. So you have to go in a digital way in education. But with the upcoming now of AI and JetGDP and whatever, of course, also in these countries, business models, business ideas, everything can be developed faster, also using artificial intelligence. And the guys in these countries can handle that as good as we can. Do you see some innovation also coming out of countries in the developing world that then become popular or become used in developing countries? I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, payment systems. Uh, I know that one of the first mobile-to-mobile -mobile payment systems, uh, I think, came up in Kenya, the M-Pesa, I think it was called, long before, I think, in most of the, the Western countries, those things existed. Is that also a way innovation can flow in the future? 
I hope so. I mean, if you look at the distribution of, let's say, unicorns or successful startups, um, we are rather in the north than in the south. So I hope that will come. And fintech is the option. I think in medicine, many can come out. There are new substances um, you can test there. They have natural resources that might lead to future innovations. So there are some really options, possibilities who create bigger startups that have a global impact than only a local impact. And the educational system, it's not as bad as, as we think. Uh, I mean, if you go there into natural sciences, chemistry, biology, physics, they're actually up to the state of art we have. So um, it's not that the education in the central means of, of scientific research, it's worse than, than we have it in Europe. Mm -hmm. So why should we not expect creating knowledge on the same level we have? So opportunities are not there as we have that in Europe. What role do cultural differences play in the sense of one country being maybe more entrepreneurial or people in one country being more entrepreneurial than in, in other countries? I mean, we're both based in Germany and uh, traditionally people say that uh, a lot of Germans are not entrepreneurial per se because they prefer to have stability of a, a fixed salary every month and so on and so forth. So can you see that those differences also when you look at some of the, the fragile countries that you are working with? Yeah, I, I see three really different countries where in Pakistan you speak about a very hierarchical um, society where um, you have to belong to certain groups to um, get investments, to be able to start up. They have a different view on, on women entrepreneurship there. Uh, that's, I mean, you have the religious impact there, which is very strong in Pakistan. That's totally different to Egypt, where it's much freer, um, where entrepreneurship has a very positive connotation, um, where students are motivated to do so. And it's, again, different to, to Tanzania, where things are slower, models develop slower, business develops slower, markets are very different to Egypt and, and Pakistan. So I'm, I'm, I'm always a bit against in saying that's Africa, that's Asia, and let's do something. I mean, every country is quite different. Um, and having been in Africa, different countries, there are huge differences between these countries. Yeah, true. And of course, within countries, of course, there are yeah. very, very different types of people and uh, motivations and ways of looking at things. I, I agree with that. So it's uh, always important not to fall into the uh, the trap of a, a stereotype. Do you also work with Latin America, by the way? Is, uh, is that uh, an area where you also have experience? Not so much. I have been there and uh, we made once a, a TU Berlin alumni seminar in, in Brazil from TU Berlin startups that settled in, in Southern America. We are working on a project now with Colombia. Um, we have some PhD students here from Colombia, so we, we were looking into that. Um, but at the moment, not so much. That's Asia, mm. it's, it's Africa, so it's more just this direction. Well, you said, I think, if I remember correctly, you have more than 80 nationalities in your programs in Berlin. So you bring a lot of students, obviously, to your your campus there. What would you say is one of the things that also the German students can learn from being exposed to that diverse group of uh, fellow students? Yeah, I have to say, I mean, that's... It's a study program where we have so many applicants, also German applicants, and the students that apply come with a certain motivation to be international, um, to think about sustainability, to think entrepreneurial. So um, it's it's not representing a German youth or the German students. It's a fraction of the German students coming to Berlin and studying that. It actually fits quite well. The students 
are not so different. Um, I think there's a very well understanding and, and it doesn't matter where people come from. And of course, I can learn about different views on sustainability, um, where we have a very strong ecological classes on, on, on view on, on sustainability. If I speak to people from other regions or from other continents, it's more in Africa. Employability is their main point of sustainability. And in other countries, again, another topic um, which goes more into the social side. So they learn from each other in understanding that we have a very complex, very complex issues that are country continent specific. Executive briefing, what you should read now. Another segment in our podcast is called Executive Briefing, What You Should Read Now. And there we ask our guests to come up with one, two, three suggestions, what people, what our listeners could read if they want to know and learn more about the topic. What would you recommend there? I mean, what should you really read about entrepreneurship as topic? I mean, it's a very interdisciplinary field. I could say what I find fascinating on that um, and explaining behavior. I mean, I'm a sociologist by nature. I remember a latest study that was about bacteria and behavior, which learned something about entrepreneurship education. Um, if people are infected with toxoplasmosis, um, that's a bacteria, and it's now among animals, mice, and so on, that the risk awareness decreases when you are infected. And it can also be proven that people get much more entrepreneurial being infected and are being less risk averse. It was a huge study among pregnant women in Denmark publishing that. That, I think, is fascinating research showing okay, do we need actually entrepreneurship education or is it better because you're infected by cats? If I would put 10 cats in a class, that would be maybe more effective than teaching all the time. According, <laughs> according to this <laughs> according to this, this research. So that is fascinating stuff. I don't think you can learn entrepreneurship and you should read about it. You should be fascinated by science. And when you are fascinated by science, somehow we you will have you will see gaps and you will see things That can be new. I mean, creativity is nothing else as a recombination of things that are out there. And as more as you know, and as more diversity you have in your knowledge, as more you can come up with. Mm -hmm. So I, I cannot suggest any book to read that that explains entrepreneurship. It doesn't exist. Good. I mean, that's at least a bold statement uh, for someone who is a, a professor of entrepreneurship, has that in his uh, title, to say that well, maybe uh, this is something where there are limits to the extent to which it can be learned. But I understand that that is an ongoing discussion. And actually, I think in the business school context, it applies to many other fields as well, such as leadership, for example, where you could probably ask the same question, can you learn to become a leader? Can you read about it in books? Or is it something that you have somehow ingrained in your DNA or you learn it through experience, in fact? But I think what is clear is that you passionately believe in the role of entrepreneurship in creating a better future for many of those countries. So if you look into the, the future, and again, you, you highlighted that a little bit a moment ago, what would be your hope? What should we, the world, the business community do to help entrepreneurs, especially in developing countries? What would you advocate for? What is your kind of call to action? From a viewpoint of a developed countries, we have to recognize that we live on living standards in a, in a wealth that cannot be transported worldwide, that would overuse any resources we would have on this planet. So we have to learn a kind, I'm not a degrowth theorist, but I think we will need a certain kind of degrowth 
and less protection for our own markets to let other markets growing. It cannot be that we sell products to Africa. I think Africa should produce their own products and rather sell it to us. And we have to learn that protecting our economy in the long term will not work because climate change will go on and also destroy our economy. So we have actually the developed countries have to give away power and economic strengths to other countries that I hope that we learn that somehow. At the moment, it does not look like that. So uh, it will be a difficult way. Um, but we, we face that this century. I mean, we have to make major decisions this century as the human beings, uh, global human beings. Thank you for that plea. And I think you, what you said earlier is uh, also giving those countries, giving entrepreneurs in those countries access to technology through patents and, and all the uh, other things that countries in the developed world have, but then also obviously opening up markets to give those entrepreneurs the opportunity to sell their innovation, their products globally as well. And uh, I agree that uh, if we don't manage to help uh, also the poorer part of the world flourish, then that will also be very, very difficult for us in the so-called global north in the, the long run. And I'm glad to hear that entrepreneurship and business, for that matter, can play a positive role and that players such as you are supporting those countries and the actors in those countries become better at what they do. So we're already at the end of uh, this episode. Uh, Professor Jan Kratzer, thank you very much for being a guest uh, here today. Thank you. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.